Something that really surprised me as a foster parent is how complex foster parenting is. That's why I'm really thankful that I'm licensed by an incredible agency that goes above and beyond to make sure their foster families are supported. Most foster parents close their home within two years and many quit within their first year. So having extra support is really helpful. I don't think my partner and I would have made it past the two-year mark without our agency's support. Kids Crossing retains more than 80% of their foster families, and I'm really not surprised by this. Kids Crossing has provided us with many free services, including therapy for the kid in our care, parenting coaching, interesting online trainings, in-home family preservation services, and a home coordinator who acts as a buffer between us and the foster care system, and so much more. What's really great is that all of these services are offered in-house by Kids Crossing. So our child's team is all aware of our current challenges and successes, and they all use the same trauma-informed therapeutic model, which means we're all speaking the same language. It's a huge time saver to not have to find all of those services on my own, and it gives me more time to play with the kid in my care. So what are you waiting for? Kids Crossing welcomes diverse and non-traditional families. They have four locations across Colorado, in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com. It's actually imperative to create boundaries because if you're surrounded by 4,000 pounds of hungry horse and they're trying to nibble the hay out of your hand, that's a recipe for an accident to happen. This is sort of counterintuitive to me, but I find it easier to set boundaries with an imposing thousand pound animal than I did with a GAL and a caseworker and all the entourage that comes with foster parenting. And and I don't mean to disparage anyone in the system. It's just that as a foster parent, it's difficult and it's really, really hard and scary to set boundaries within the system because the system's not designed necessarily to respect the boundaries of the foster family. Welcome to GISA Special, the place to learn more about foster care from diverse perspectives. I'm Natasha, a foster mom, and today's episode is part two of our conversation with Groundwork Ranch co-founders Dave Weiner and Lottie Grimes. So if you haven't already listened to part one yet, we suggest you go back and do that first. Today's episode is all about boundary setting with the foster care system, with the kids in our care, and with ourselves. And just like in episode one, Dave and Lottie use examples of their work with horses to bring their lessons to life. Let's dive in and pick up our conversation where I asked what challenges get stirred up for each of them personally in their work with horses and foster parents. There are times when we're out working with the horses when I see something happening. Let's say someone's having a hard time getting a horse to do something and I see, okay, well, they're putting too much pressure on the horse or they're sending a a mixed signal. A lot of times I need to keep quiet and let the parent discover that on their own because things are much more impactful when people have the experience. If someone's out there having a hard time getting a horse to move and they're starting to get frustrated, instead of me stepping in and saying, hey, are you starting to get frustrated? 
I have to step back and let them continue to struggle until they decide, okay, wait, I'm starting to get dysregulated. Maybe I need to step back for a moment. That is going to make much more of an impact on what they take away from the program than if I had stepped in and said that. So that can sometimes be hard, watching folks struggle. Nobody likes to watch other people struggle. We want to help people. It's especially true for someone with my background. Like I said, my role in my family a lot of the time was to kind of make everything better and save people from their struggle. And I can't do that. There are times that still comes up for me. I want to help people. I want to save them from the struggle, but it's way more impactful uh, if they learn on their own. And oftentimes I think something is going on and that this is the lesson that this person is going to get from this experience. And then when I ask them later, uh, what, what was that experience like for you? They have a totally different lesson that they got from the experience. And thank goodness I did not interject in those moments. I would say too, like a parallel to that could be as a foster parent, you could think, you know, oh, I had this really great conversation with this kid in my home. Their lesson or takeaway could be totally different than what you interpret it to be or thought it would be. Yeah, that's interesting. A lot of times for foster kids, the content of the conversation will be forgotten in a moment, but what they might remember is the feeling that they had. This, they felt safe having this conversation or they felt peaceful having a conversation. My challenge is, is very similar. I guess I come at it from just a slightly different perspective. I find it challenging to acknowledge to myself and to foster parents that I don't have all the answers. They might ask me, why is my horse doing this? Or what does it mean when my horse does this? And I don't always have the answer. And I have to remind myself that I don't have to always have the answer because of exactly what Lottie just pointed out. The answer that the participant, that the foster parent comes up with is just as if not more valid and more important than any answer I could give. And and I feel like I have personally experienced that as a foster parent. I'm a trauma therapist. I'm supposed to, on paper, know how to work with a child who has experienced trauma. When I've had a child in my house, I don't always have the answers. I throw up my hands and go, I don't, I don't know what to do. And I, I tag out and, and I've had to ask my wife to take over. And that's humbling. And I get glimpses of that same feeling sometimes during workshops. It's a humbling feeling and it's, and it's difficult for me to remember that my job as a facilitator and also my job as a foster parent isn't to always be right, isn't to always be the absolute authority. Yeah. And I think that goes back to just being able to observe moments as they are instead of like putting all our own projections or um, past experiences right on it. How has Groundwork Ranch transformed each of you? I would say personally, I'm a different parent, friend, partner, probably business partner with Dave uh, since I work with horses. All the lessons that we teach and have our horses help us teach to foster parents or any of the clients that we work with, even in our other programs, those are all skills that I live. And I know the struggles of applying them under difficult circumstances, but I try really hard to do that because every time I go out with the horses, I'm held to the standard 
and I have to behave in a certain way in order to get what I want when I'm working with them. So I've had to learn to apply those skills in my real life. I think for me, working with the horses has really transformed, or gosh, I'll put that in present tense. It is always transforming my relationship skills, you know, and particularly my willingness and ability to set appropriate boundaries. That hasn't always been my strong suit. And I know a lot of people in the world struggle with setting and maintaining boundaries. And working with the horses is helping me learn to say what I need in a relationship. It's okay if I need the horse to move away. It's okay for me to set a boundary that I might have previously thought was mean or was arbitrary or was selfish. Uh, So I think working with horses has definitely made me less afraid of having boundaries. Yeah, I would say sort of in line with that, the relationship that Dave and I have developed between the two of us, because we work with horses, has had to be based on the principles that we use when we're working with horses. So we often have conversations about how do you feel about doing this, being clear about, well, I I could say yes to that, but I'd probably feel some resentment after a little while. So I'm going to say no. (laughs) And we've developed a relationship where that works. It works really well. That's really fascinating because I can imagine too, like if you're a partnered foster parent or even an unpartnered foster parent working with a team, like that can be really hard to set those boundaries, especially when you might feel like, oh, you know, there's a lot of eyes and expectations on me. And Dave, that's really interesting what you brought up of the horse teaching you the boundary. Can you give like a concrete example of a time that you like set a boundary with a horse that, you know, before, like you said, you would have defined it as like mean or selfish? The first thing that comes to my mind is related to feeding the horses, which in part entails walking through a herd of horses carrying a handful of or or an armful of hay. And to stay safe, it's actually imperative to create boundaries because if you're surrounded by, you know, 4,000 pounds of hungry horse and they're trying to nibble the hay out of your hand, that's a recipe for an accident to happen. And it would be easy for me, or at least it would have been years ago, for me to just allow them to do that and just kind of hope that they'd be gentle. But the more healthy, sustainable, appropriate thing to do is for me to make my energy big, maybe wave my hand, maybe even push one or, or give a little knuckle to the muzzle uh, if he gets too close and really communicate that, no, right now you're not allowed to come within two feet of me until I put this handful of hay on the ground. So my boundary, in, in that case, that's an example of literally a physical boundary that I need to maintain with the horse It'd be easy again for me to just say, well, they're hungry. Come on, I should let them eat. Uh, But that would be jeopardizing my safety to appear nice. And I'm not asking them much. I'm not asking them something that is unreal, unreasonable of them. And I am not encroaching on their agency and on their rights (laughs) by having needs of my own. I'm not neglecting or abusing them by saying, no, you have to wait 30 seconds until I've walked across the corral. Uh, I'm just saying that my safety right now 
is my priority and I'm going to maintain that safety by pushing you away. That's so much there um, that we could dive into. That could be a whole nother podcast, right? <laughs> right. But, um, okay. Call us back. <laughs> right, right. No, it's it's so true though. And I think too, it's no secret that foster families burn out. And in Colorado, most foster families close their homes within two years and a huge number close wow. after one year. So that yeah. is so important, having those boundaries. And I know that's something my partner and I struggled with with our first placement. You can tell yourself, oh, I need to make up for past stuff. And, you know, even if you're right. consciously telling right. yourself that's not possible, I think there's a subconscious part that still tries to do that. So that was a huge journey we walked through of what does that actually look like in practice of us not trying to do that, but also trying to create a healthy healing environment where healing can be a choice. And so now with the kid in care in my home, like I will be like, hey, I need some space. You know, I'm like, I give him space when he needs it. So he also needs to learn how to give me space when I need it. And that's something that I can not feel guilty about needing some time to myself. And my partner and I, I think we've gotten better at communicating to each other. Like, hey, I just hit a wall. Like I need a few hours. Realizing that we're not pressuring each other to do more than we're capable, I think is is big too. Yeah, that's a lot. Well, and and just one other kind of ingredient or, or component of the, the boundaries in the foster care setting. This is sort of counterintuitive to me, but I find it easier to set boundaries with an imposing thousand pound animal than I did with a GAL and a caseworker and all the entourage that comes with foster parenting. And, and I don't mean to disparage anyone in the system. It's just that as a foster parent, it's difficult. I really want to acknowledge how difficult it is to set healthy, sustainable boundaries for you and if you're partnered, for your partner, for your family that include saying no or saying not now to all the powers that be. Like you just said, there's so many eyes on you and it's really, really hard and scary to set boundaries within the system, because the system's not designed necessarily to respect the boundaries of the foster family. Uh, and, I, and again, I don't, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole and I don't want to like badmouth the system, but I just want to acknowledge how hard it is to set those kinds of boundaries. There's rarely anyone standing there going, good job. Thank you for setting a boundary and saying no to me. People don't generally do that. But one of the great things about working with horses is that when you do set boundaries, it increases their respect for you. They respect you more, they trust you more, and it actually improves the relationship. So the, the horses in our herd that have the highest status are the clearest with their boundaries. As a foster parent, I mean, it's something I've experienced where that's something I had to learn that, hey, when I'm setting these clear boundaries, it was really easy for me to get scared of doing that sometimes and think, okay, well, this kid is not going to like me then. And then that's going to be a whole thing. But I've seen that play out in my own home after having that training is just having had the opportunity to work with horses and to see that my horse who was difficult did respect me a lot more when I did set boundaries. The fact that they feel safer allows them then the capacity to even have any other feelings. Like then they can actually feel some enjoyment or joy or whatever it is. That's exactly right. It wasn't until... Soul knew that you were listening to him and you were working with him and you were respecting his space and that he was respecting yours. It wasn't until then that he had the 
space for himself to to actually come and stand near you. Right. That was a choice he made at that point. Yeah. Right. Or like nuzzle up against me. Yeah. Another way that boundaries communicate safety to horses and actually to humans. So our herd, like all herds, is is led by a, a female, by the lead mare. If she's strong enough to communicate and maintain a boundary with, you know, a, a rambunctious young horse, then what she's also telling that horse and the rest of her herd is that I am strong enough to protect this herd. I can I can keep everyone in line with the expectations of this herd, just like I can keep the herd safe from predators. And I think something similar happens in parenting. If I can set a boundary, you know, kids need boundaries and very, very, very few of them will ever admit that. In fact, they'll say the exact opposite. But in reality, I believe and I know Lottie believes this too, that that the boundaries communicate that I can handle myself and therefore I can handle the situation. I value my boundaries and by extension, we are all safer because I am so strong at boundaries. One of the most intimidating parts of foster parenting for me was when my home was investigated for child abuse by the Department of Human Services. When I was in foster parent training, they told us that if you foster long enough, it's not a matter of if you will be investigated, it's a matter of when. So how did my partner and I get through it? Honestly, it was a huge relief to have our agency support during that time. Kids Crossing is a private foster care agency in Colorado, and they had our home coordinator explain the process to us, and she was available to be present during our interviews. Kids Crossing even followed up on our case with child welfare so they could keep us updated. It was a huge relief to feel like we weren't going through the process alone. But to be completely honest, it can feel pretty discouraging to be investigated for false allegations after all the support you've provided as a foster parent. So it was also really encouraging to have our home coordinator repeatedly check in with us and normalize the experience for us. And knowing our agency could help us legally if needed was a huge stress reliever. Kids Crossing even sent us a thank you card to help us celebrate our home being opened up again. Kids Crossing welcomes diverse and non-traditional families. They have four locations across Colorado and Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more about how you can become a foster parent at kidscrossing.com. And I think too, in working with the horses, then realizing like, hey, like I can apply pressure and be very calm about it and it will do the same result. Like I don't need to get really angry or fumey. And also too, I need to respect my own boundaries and I can assure the kid like, no, I've had, I had to tell him recently, like, Um, he ran away at the park and I was pretty upset. And so I was like, you know, I'm really disappointed in what happened. Um, I'm going to go take the dog on a walk and then, you know, we're going to have a little chat. And so just waiting for a moment when we were both a lot more calm to talk. And, And how amazing that you named your feeling, because a lot of times these kids don't know what they're feeling. They just haven't had a chance to take the time to learn what exactly am I feeling? So by naming your feeling, you help your child recognize you know, it's okay to acknowledge what, what I'm feeling. He may have in his mind made up a story about what you were feeling, angry and, you know, horrified and something else. By saying, I'm disappointed, you're kind of putting his mind at ease. Okay, she's disappointed. She's not really angry at me. 
um, but also helping him learn to name and honor his feelings and then take appropriate action based on those feelings. Because once you name your feeling, it decreases the intensity of the feeling. And that's one little trick that if kids could learn to do, we try to help parents teach kids to just, just name what you're feeling because already your amygdala is going to be soothed a little bit by that action. Yeah, no, that's so huge. And another little quick example that goes back to that, like setting the boundary and then also naming things out is sometimes like he would be using like a disrespectful tone of voice. And so instead of making it a big deal, just being like, you want to try that again, almost in like a jokey way. So it takes takes that down, but acknowledging it every single time it happened. And there'd be some days where I'm like, I'd rather just like let it pass. Right. Like it wasn't that big of a deal, but I did it every single time. Sort of like, you know, if you want a horse to go a direction, you keep tugging until it starts to go the direction you want it to go. And then I noticed a difference, you know, it took like several weeks, but definitely I noticed a difference. And then at first he would start to correct himself. So he'd start to use a bad tone of voice and then he would correct himself and be like, Oh wait, I mean this. And then um, now more so it's just like more practice because it's like, Hey, you want to try that again? Just cause you didn't do it on the first try doesn't mean all is lost, you know? And you know, Natasha, I'm so glad you said that because a lot of times we're under the impression that boundaries have to be communicated in an aggressive tone or, or in a defensive tone. But what you just said is, you know, you created a boundary in a playful tone or at least in a lighthearted tone. And more important, I think, than the tone, as important as that is, but even more important is the consistency you just mentioned. If your boundary is at point X today and tomorrow it's at point Z, that's an example of those mixed signals. And that's not a real boundary. And that's probably more damaging than in some ways than not even having a boundary. Yes, it is. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Cause yeah, it was in a consistent place. So he knew like, Hey, we're going to go back to it. And then also I came up with that also kind of thinking about how you want to make the best choice, the choice of least resistance. So he, he doesn't want to go back and repeat a response to when I'm like, Hey, you want to wash your hands? And he'd be like, Oh, come on. I'm like, you want to try that again? You know, like he doesn't want to have to do that every time. And if he knows he's going to have to do that every time he has not the greatest reaction then that makes it the path of least resistance for him, right? To just like not say anything or just do it or whatever. One thing we say with the horses and, and, it, and it applies exactly to parenting too. It's, it's, it's what you just mentioned. We, we tell people, make the right thing easy and the wrong thing difficult. So with horses, if I want the horse to go in a certain direction, I'm going to make sure that it's easy for the horse to go in that direction. I'm not going to put all these obstacles in his or her way. If I want my horse to stop doing something, I'm going to make doing it hard or annoying. And that's sort of what you're describing you're doing. He, he wants to do the path of least resistance, I think is what you called it. That's absolutely true. We see that with horses and we talk about it with the foster parents who come to the ranch. Yeah. When, it's funny. When I was a lifeguard, um, kids running around the pool was always a thing. And the way I would handle it is blow a whistle and then they have to go back to wherever it was that they started running and they have to walk. And so eventually they learn, if I just walk, I don't have to do this again and I'll get there probably sooner than I would if I ran. <laughs> yeah, it's those little things, right? I mean, that's something <laughs> yeah. I totally 
Wish I knew before I started all of this. They don't necessarily teach that in foster parenting training. But what are some things that you wish you'd known before you started this work? That's a that's a good uh, question. I think we would both agree that we really value the process of learning. So there might be a lot of things we would have missed if we had known all the things before we started. Do you know what I mean? The value of just really trial and error. And, and there's a lot of value in not knowing things and learning them as you go. Dave, what do you think about that? Would you agree with that? I do agree with it. As you were saying that, I was just thinking of, you know, th- th- there's, a, there's a Zen concept called beginner's mind which is sort of a, something to aspire to because in the beginner's mind, the options are infinite and you haven't locked into it has to be this way and only this way. Uh, you're open to the learning process and to acknowledging all the different ways of going about something. And I think Lottie and I really appreciate that. And that's part of what we've tried to build the culture of the organization around. Is that sort of the main advice that you'd give for foster parents is just to have that openness and that curiosity and be trying different creative ways? Or I'd love to hear from you guys what you think about that. Yes, absolutely. That openness and the corresponding humility, I think, is key. If if you're asking about advice for foster parents, gosh, a couple things come to mind that I would have appreciated if someone had told me when I was foster parenting, and probably the number one thing, uh, and I know that Lottie feels the same way, is prioritize self-care. I've heard Lottie say, self-care is not optional for foster parents. It's, it's not. It's, it's not. I think it's the most important factor in effective foster parenting. That's something I've come to believe even more strongly the more I work with foster families and horses. Self-care That's such a big topic with all kinds of ways to interpret it. And I'm sure we can can talk for a long time about that. Um, But one big part of self-care for foster parents is forming a community. Uh, Foster parenting can be very isolating. And it's really, really important to have people around you who get it who aren't going to judge you and tell you that you're parenting wrong, or why don't you just be stricter, or whatever is the advice du jour. Forming that community. Here in Colorado, we're lucky enough to have a couple organizations like Foster Source and Cobbled Streets, uh, two, two organizations we partner with that are just fantastic organizations. Foster Source is, is dedicated to supporting foster parents, and Cobbled Streets is, is focused on helping foster children have quote unquote normal experiences of childhood. But any way you can find a community is such an important aspect of self-care. And the other one that comes to my mind, like I said, it's such a multifaceted topic, but the other one is really giving yourself grace. This is hard work and no one does it perfectly. And I think it's so important for foster parents to just Write that on a sticky note and put it on your bathroom mirror because it's so easy with so many eyes on you and so many shoulds and so many requirements. It's really easy to just assume you're doing something wrong as soon as you wake up. And that can be really exhausting and really damaging, not only to your own mental health, but to your family's mental health. 
So giving yourself grace is, I think, really important. There's just no way to get everything quote unquote right. And it is a journey like you guys mentioned. And that's something we talk about a lot on the podcast is we're all learning and we're all growing. And a big part of being a foster parent is becoming a better person. One of the things that we didn't necessarily expect is really the feeling that foster parents get the importance of the feeling they get when they're sort of free from all the things that are involved in foster parenting and the importance of that. So it's not just, let's say, having respite and going home and cleaning the house. That happens a lot. People will be like, oh, I'm doing self-care. I took the kids to respite and I got a lot of laundry done. <laughs> and there, that's very important. And it is certainly sometimes self-care. But when people come to the ranch, as I mentioned earlier, they're in a completely different environment. They're around animals that are very, very regulated. They're around other parents. There's, you know, no judgment. They're doing something that's, for most people, is kind of fun. Actually, I don't think anyone has ever said this wasn't kind of fun. It's definitely not easy working with our horses. We don't set it up to be easy. I will tell you that foster parents overall are better at working with horses than the general public because of all the trainings and all the knowledge and experience that they have because it does so directly translate to working with horses. People come out, they get very attached to the horses. They get very attached to the sort of the experience. So we developed a level two and we have lots of parents who want to come back and do the program again. And we certainly encourage that. There's always more to learn. I learn something new every day from the horses and working with them. Yeah. How about for you, Dave? Is there anything else you'd like to touch on? We have one horse in particular who has a extremely traumatic background, more so maybe than our other horses. And we purposely don't tell parents really anything about the horses until after they have chosen a horse to work with or the horse has chosen them. And when people work with this particular horse and then learn of the horse's history and all of the abuse uh, she has suffered, or I should say she has survived, often the immediate reaction is pity or is, oh, she's had such a hard life. I don't want to make her do anything. She doesn't, she just deserves to be treated gently and and just have a nice day it's it's harder to set boundaries and to set expectations and the the interesting thing is a lot of people do that with kids in care maybe not consciously or or consciously but but certainly subconsciously there's this idea that wow these kids have been through so much i don't want to put them through anymore i'm just going to be really really easy. I'm going to make their life really easy. And it's a very understandable reaction. I know I've been guilty of that reaction myself. But the, the reality is when foster parents work with this particular horse, there's an opportunity to challenge that thinking and to really say, you know, this horse, or let's also say this child, might just be the strongest out here, the bravest, the most resilient out here because of what she has survived. So it's okay to set realistic expectations to expect 
appropriate things from her, to be fair, to be consistent, not to coddle, not to treat like a damaged victim. Uh, And I think that's an important lesson for for anyone working with a child who has experienced trauma. Uh, Does that mean that I'm going to saddle up this one horse and put her in a race with a horse twice her size and twice her speed and expect something really remarkable to happen? Well, no, I'm going to have realistic expectations, but it also doesn't mean I'm going to let this horse uh, sit in the corner eating grain for the rest of her life and expect nothing of her. Uh, And I think that that is really translatable to working with kiddos who have experienced these hard things. By having reasonable and appropriate expectations that don't sort of play to her background, we're focusing on the strengths of being a survivor. I mean, kids in care are the toughest kids out there. skills that they have in order to survive some of the things they have survived, those are real strengths. And by helping folks really recognize those are strengths. The strengths that I have from growing up in my family, they come in handy every day. And and people who have experienced tough things know, I've survived this, then this isn't going to be that bad. I've got lots of strengths that I can pull on. So we help people see Ren, this little pony, or this horse that Dave's talking about. We help people see her absolutely as a survivor and a thriver rather than a victim. I think the kindest thing we can do as a foster parent is to help the kids in our care build life skills. Whether that's leaning in and growing their interests or learning how to create healthy relationships, the list really goes on. But that's not necessarily how I thought of my main role as a foster parent at the beginning of my journey. So often we hear that all you need to do is love on these kids, but it's so much more complicated than that as Dave and Lottie described. And sometimes it's going to fall on us as foster parents to educate a child's teachers or our other family members unrealistic boundaries and expectations for these kids, both on where more flexibility may be needed, but also on what strengths these kids bring to the table. I sure learned a lot from Lottie and Dave and hope you did too. Like I mentioned in their last episode, any foster parent can attend their foster parent practice lab for free in Louisville, Colorado. Visit groundworkranch.org to learn more. That's a wrap. And as always, we love hearing from you. Please give us a follow and review on Apple Podcasts as it goes a long way in helping our show raise foster care awareness. And be sure to visit our website, justaspecial.com, for additional foster care resources. This podcast is produced by Kelton Reed and New Media Dojo. Something that really surprised me as a foster parent is how complex foster parenting is. That's why I'm really thankful that I'm licensed by an incredible agency that goes above and beyond to make sure their foster families are supported. Most foster parents close their home within two years, and many quit within their first year. So having extra support is really helpful. I don't think my partner and I would have made it past the two-year mark without our agency's support. Kids Crossing retains more than 80% of their foster families, and I'm really not surprised by this. 
Kids Crossing has provided us with many free services, including therapy for the kid in our care, parenting coaching, interesting online trainings, in-home family preservation services, and a home coordinator who acts as a buffer between us and the foster care system, and so much more. What's really great is that all of these services are offered in-house by Kids Crossing. So our child's team is all aware of our current challenges and successes, and they all use the same trauma-informed therapeutic model, which means we're all speaking the same language. It's a huge time saver to not have to find all of those services on my own, and it gives me more time to play with the kid in my care. So what are you waiting for? Kids Crossing welcomes diverse and non-traditional families. They have four locations across Colorado, in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com.